Next week's going to be in John. So we're finished at the beginning of chapter 12, then we're going to have that break, do something different for a couple of weeks and a couple of weeks off um, over the summer period. And then hopefully we'll finish off John next term as we roll down towards Christmas. What we're going to be looking at today is um, particularly the reactions to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, looking around um, the world today, is where Jesus is everywhere. I don't know if you've actually clocked that. Sometimes being a Christian and kind of being involved with it, you kind of don't see what the, what's happening out in there, the world. But as far as I'm concerned, Jesus is everywhere. Even though he was born in a, a rural town, in a kind of a backwater place of the, of the Roman Empire, he had no formal education, he had a teenage mum, he never travelled anywhere very far from his home, he never wrote a book, never on television, never had a Twitter or Facebook account. Um, yet he is dominating kind of the world we live in now, 2,000 years later. He is everywhere. He cannot be ignored. I went on Google and I typed in the word Jesus and I clicked enter. There were 120 million hits. That came out. I read the number at the top where it says how many pages are. And that was, just, that was just the word. I just put in Jesus, see what happened. 120 million hits. I went on Amazon okay, let's look. and I looked just in the book section. And I just wrote in Jesus. 165,000 books came up on Amazon.co.uk. I went on to the, the American one. I think they're a bit more Christian than us over in America. I clicked in there, Jesus on Amazon.com, 295,000 books. Kind of came up. That was their search. Thinking, that was a lot of pages to scroll through if you want books on um, Jesus. I don't know if you watched the World Cup. There's a bit of fuss about that a few weeks ago. Not from England's point of view, but a lot of other countries did quite well. What was the enduring image of the World Cup? It was Christ the Redeemer, a statue above... Um, the city in, is it Rio, isn't it? Rio in Brazil, where the World Cup was being held. They kept showing that aerial shot of Christ standing over the city where the, um, some of the World Cup games were being played. Jesus even appears in popular culture on television. If you ever watch The Simpsons, Jesus is a reoccurring character in The Simpsons. Ever watch South Park? Well, don't if you haven't. Um, but he appears in that as well, another reoccurring character. His teaching has permeated culture today. He's love one another. The Sermon on the Mount is revered around the world, different cultures. Jesus' teaching um, that he never wrote down, others wrote down on his behalf, is everywhere. Even in fashion, people wear crosses around their neck, even if they don't purport to be Christians or don't profess to be Christians. The cross is everywhere. It's a fashion item. You even have t-shirts that say things like, Jesus is my homeboy, uh, whatever that means. Um, but he's everywhere. And because he's everywhere, you need to deal with him. Because he's all around, you have to actually deal with him and you have to make a response. And what we've got in today's passage is Jesus being so prevalent in the situation that people are forced to deal with him and make a response to him and react to what he's done. If you can remember what we did last week, looked at last week, there was um, the famous story of Jesus um, raising Lazarus from the dead. One of the most well-known miracles of Jesus. Even that miracle itself has permeated popular culture. When you hear the name Lazarus, if you're watching TV or something, it's usually in reference to resurrection, even if it's got nothing to do with this Bible story. The Lazarus Project, you find these in, in different TV programs and the like. And so Jesus has performed this stunning, breathtaking miracle of bringing a guy back from the dead. And we saw last time that Lazarus had been dead four days which in Jewish culture, Jewish superstition, meant that the, the, the soul of the body had kind of left the vicinity. Decay had set in to the corpse. And so when that happened, you were definitely dead, super dead, irreversibly dead, dead, dead. Okay, that was, you were beyond anything 
by that point. And yet Jesus goes to the tomb and says, just move the stone. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And if we think about that, in that culture, that would have been a front page news item. It's believed that Lazarus and his uh, sisters Mary and Martha were from a prominent family in the village of Bethany. There was lots of people who had come down from Jerusalem to, to, help, to mourn with them over the loss of Lazarus when he had died. He was sick. And so he believed they were fairly well-to-do, fairly prominent, fairly wealthy. And so the fact that he had died would have been a big deal. The fact that he then came back was like, not dead anymore, guys. The news is kind of, you know, has changed. That would have been front-page news. That would have trended on Twitter around Jerusalem had that happened. There would have been hashtag resurrection. Hashtag Lazarus, he's back. Hashtag, I'm not dead anymore, or something like that. There would have been that kind of thing. There would have been stuff on Facebook. I bet Lazarus would have got a lot more Facebook friend requests after that. You're the guy who died and they brought back, you know, from the dead kind of thing. So it was massive. It would have been there. It would have got back to Jerusalem. It was only a couple of miles away from Bethany to Jerusalem and many people had come down from Jerusalem to, to be part of the kind of the mourning funeral for Lazarus. And then Jesus comes up and changes it all. They'd have all witnesses. They said there was a crowd there. As Jesus said, move the stone, come out. And he came shuffling out in his kind of, his brown graze clothes. So the, the news would have gone everywhere. And so what we have is this, people then have to deal with that. There's got to be a reaction to what happened. You can't just kind of face that in a vacuum and be neutral. How do you cope with that news? And what you've got in the back end of chapter 11 today is the kind of reaction to what happened to what, with, with Jesus and how people kind of dealt with that. So let's have a look. You've got verse 45 we're going to start with. So bear in mind, this is literally straight after Jesus has said, Lazarus come out, he's come out, he said, and bind him, let him go. So Lazarus is back from the dead. Um, and it says this, verse 45, many of the Jews, that would have been the people there who had witnessed this, been part of this, therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, that's Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better uh, for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from on that, that day, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Okay. The reaction to Jesus. It says, first of all, that there's many who'd actually witnessed what had happened, put their faith and trust in Jesus. So one of the reactions of the witnesses when they heard this news was a faith and a trust and a commitment in Jesus. We'd seen this before. 
Um, others he'd perform miracles. Sometimes the, the, the nature of their faith is questioned. Was it actually a deep, genuine, abiding faith? Or was it just kind of this surfacy, wow, the guy does kind of magic tricks and they're a bit cool. Shall we follow him until he, he, he teaches us something a bit more difficult and then we'll just we'll find our own way? But actually, know that there are people who put their faith and trust in him. However, there were others who weren't so convinced. And it says they went to tell the Pharisees. The tone of the way it's written is it's likely it was with malicious intent. They were going to tell tales on Jesus. You know, it's like what the kids do at school. They, they grasp on one another. Someone does something and they, they, they grasp them up and they tell them. So then these are, they ran to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus had done. Now, the Pharisees were a group... We've met them before, they're a group within the kind of the Jewish um, religious thing, and they were, they, were, they were devout believers. They loved God, they loved his word, um, the Bible, as they had it. They would have only had sort of the Old Testament, particularly the law, the first five books of the Bible. They were zealous for God, they were zealous for his law, they were zealous uh, to keep the law and honour God. And so they were, in our vernacular, they were good Bible-believing, church-going people. Okay, that's what they and they were zealous for the things of God. They they kept the commandments. In fact, they added the added commandments to the commandments, so they made sure they never even broke the commandments because they added extra ones. And so they they put a, built a hedge around the law of God to make sure that they would never be guilty of breaking it. And they were very kind of import of uh, a passion about that. And there were many many around at that time, and they were considered quite highly by the average Jewish people. They were considered kind of godly men who love God and want to serve God. Um, but they hear about this, and they've had problems with Jesus all along. They've, they've come up against him. they found themselves at odds with him repeatedly. And they hear about this kind of, uh-oh, what's Jesus done now? He's, he's risen, raised someone from the dead. And what they do is they go to um, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin um, is what it's called, referred to the council there, which was the, the ruling council... Of Jewish, which covered all matters, um, religious, but also political and legal as well. There was about, they think there's about 70 members in this council. So it was fairly big, um, and uh, they, it was dominated by the high priest and his family. And the high priest is, is mentioned there. So they bring this matter before the council. What's going on here? What's going on? And the Pharisees would have been part of this council. And so you can imagine 70 people in a room, kind of talking, debating about... What's going on? And Jesus is agenda item number one. So they've been called to order. Number one on the agenda, let's go through. Order of business, Jesus raising people from the dead. Now, what they do is I find fascinating when, they, when you read this. It says, um, they said, the, ga- the council gathered and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? So what are they acknowledging? Jesus performs miracles. They're not denying who he is, or they're actually saying, this guy performs miracles. And we've looked at some of them in John. We've had water into wine. We've had feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we've had uh, healing the official's son, the man who was lame, the man born blind, and now we've got a guy who's been raised from the dead. So a pretty impressive resume of signs that we've already seen in John's Gospel, let alone if we go to the other Gospels and have a look at all the other things Jesus has done as well, because there's a fuller account if you get the other three Gospels involved. So they recognize that Jesus is a miracle worker. They actually see that about him. This guy performs miracles. He performs signs. He, he does things um, from God in what, he, what he's doing that are incredible. But in the face of that evidence, they refuse to change their stance on Jesus. They're faced with overwhelming kind of proof, if you will, that what this guy does is pretty incredible, pretty amazing, worth taking note of. And they just ignore it. They will not change their stance. And his final sign, because John... 
In his gospel, we've, he's had seven signs that point to Jesus, who Jesus is. And the, the raising of Lazarus was the seventh kind of final one. And even in the face of that, like, he's just raised a guy from the dead who was dead four days. Even in the face of that, they will refuse to change their opinion and change their position. And they, they, want, they, they don't like Jesus. They don't like what he stands for. They've got a problem with him. And even in the face of that evidence, they're not going to change. They're not going to, to deal with him. And they're... Their motivation there, it says, actually, if this, this, this goes on, there could be a problem because uh, the, the Romans could come and take away our place and our nation, they say. Our place would be a reference to the temple, the temple courts, the kind of centre of Jewish life, religious life, uh, political life. It's all, in the, all bound up in the temple, and they think that the Romans could take this away from us. So that's kind of where they are. They, they, they want to maintain what, the status quo. They want to maintain their power and authority within uh, the, the, the current, current structure. They're the ruling council. They don't want to give that up. They don't want to acknowledge any, any other power. That They want to keep that. And, and so what do they do? It says, and this guy called Caiaphas. Now, we're going to meet him a few more times. He's the high priest. He served a long time as high priest. And uh, by this time, if you go back in the Old Testament, the high priest was the one who kind of ministered the tabernacle, the temple before God. Um, a very kind of anointed position. Aaron was the first one, and then his line afterwards. But by this time, it's the kind of the order has got corrupted, and it's more of a political office that people can have for a long time, and they hold on to it. And Caiaphas was high priest for quite a long time, and he was high priest at this particular moment. And as they're debating as the council, you can imagine 70 guys in a room, agitated, talking about this Jesus, what are we going to do about it? A lot of kind of, what do we do? Do we do this? Do we do that? Do we do that? A lot of chatting back and forth. And Caiaphas, who would have had a position of authority in the council, leading the council, cuts across it all. And what does he say? He says, uh, you know nothing at all, he says. Nor do you understand. Check out what he says. For you, um, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. John likes in his gospel using kind of irony, hidden meaning, extra meaning, and often he lets the reader work it out. But here, if you read on, he doesn't leave it to you to kind of like work out. He states it really plainly. He actually says, he did not say this of his own accord, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year. He prophesied, which means he spoke the words of God that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather in the children of God who are scattered abroad. So actually, John is pointing out that even in Caiaphas' kind of, this is what we should do, it's actually the voice of God that's coming through, through the actions, the sinful actions of man, and the loaded irony of what he says. For the start, Caiaphas uses sacrificial language. Effectively, he's saying, let's sacrifice one man to save the nation. What's the irony there? Jesus actually is the sacrifice. They just want to sacrifice him, get him out of the way, deal him. But actually, as we read on the story, we're going to find out Jesus is the one ultimate sacrifice given for man. He was saying, actually, if we kill this one guy, we're going to save, save our nation. And the irony is that Jesus' one death would ultimately be for that nation and would save it. Not in the way they're thinking, but ultimately it would lead to salvation uh, for many. Um, and he also means that um, the nation wouldn't perish, um, uh, wouldn't die. That's what Carfax is saying. Well, the nation won't perish. Either the Romans aren't going to come and destroy us if we get rid of Jesus. But actually, Jesus' death means that they're not going to perish eternally if they put their faith and trust in him. They're thinking very kind of earthly, temporally. And actually, behind that, Jesus' one death is going to mean, one day will mean actually you don't even have to perish eternally if you put your faith and trust in him. And the, the, the other kind of thing, in, in view of history, when this gospel was written, about AD 90, 
what another the really tragic element of what Caiaphas was saying. Even though they did it and they followed through their actions to kill Jesus, the nation did ultimately perish. Because in AD 70, um, there was a rebellion in Jerusalem. Rome came and, and leveled the city, leveled the city, leveled the temple, put many to the sword. And ultimately, the, the, not long after this was said, um, the nation was effectively destroyed, uh, which is what they were trying to prevent. And actually, when the readers would have got this book, about 1890, 90, 20 years prior, they'd be reading these words and actually thinking, how tragic is what this man's saying, that actually it did come about, the nation did perish. What they were desperately trying to save the wrong way ultimately came to pass anyway. Caiaphas' motives were political. He thought, if we just kill this one guy, everything will be okay. Everything like he wasn't seeing the, the kind of the bigger picture and the prophecy John is saying actually there's a bigger thing going on here. There's actually a theological kind of truth behind that. He's thinking on one level, kind of sinfully, let's kill this one guy and everything should be okay and no one's going to rock the boat. But actually, ultimately, Jesus is going to die for the sins of the nation and not just them, those who are scattered abroad. It ultimately, in its first meaning, that's reference to other Jews who lived around um, in the dispersion, lived around throughout the Roman Empire. But from our point of view, we can see the wider foreshadowing of the church and actually God's desire to bring in the, the nations of the world, every tribe, every language, every people, which would include us into that. So actually, even in what Caiaphas is saying and even what John's pointing out, there is that prophecy talking about us. And it says that the high priest said this, let's just kill this guy. And it says uh, that they accepted the plan. The Sanhedrin, the council said, yes. And in verse 53, it says, from on that day, or from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And what that means is there was a resolution. That means there was a commitment. They made a firm decision in their hearts that they were going to kill Jesus. Effectively, the decision was made. All they needed to do was carry it out. It's like um, if, you, if, you, if there's going to be a military strike against a, a foreign power, the decision is made up top by whoever's in charge, the prime minister, the president, and they make the decision, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to launch a military action, we're going to send a missile strike, or we're going to send troops in there. And then all that it needs is a trickle-down effect from the, through the command structure for the actual action to happen, the troops to go in, the planes to, to set off, the missiles to fire. And what they've done at the top of the command structure is we're going to kill this guy. They've made a firm, resolute decision, and all they need now is that to trickle down, and they actually need to get their hands on Jesus and follow through. And they're obviously going to seek to arrest him, but they don't want to arrest him so they can put him on trial. As far as they're concerned, he's guilty. They want him to arrest him so they can kill him. They've gone beyond that. Let's, let's get him on trial, bring evidence, get a verdict, all that. No, they'll be on there like, we've, we've made a decision, we're going to kill Jesus. And so their reaction to what kind of Jesus has been doing and ultimately Lazarus kind of raise, uh, raising Lazarus from the death was almost the last, the nail in the coffin, if you will, the last straw. And actually, like, we've got to kill this guy. We've seen rising opposition over the last chapter, increase, 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 and then it's got to this point where it's actually, no, we've had enough. This guy has to die. And it says what was the response, the aftermath of that. It says, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim which is about 12 miles uh, from Jerusalem, so kind of a way out from the political centre and all the stuff that was going on there. So Jesus withdrew himself. So within this context, Jesus would have known they were after him. They know what to do, and he chose to withdraw himself. And what we see, what we see here is actually Jesus being obedient to God's, God the Father's timing. 
Jesus wasn't, we know Jesus was going to die, and we know that was his plan. He's spoken about it. He knew where he was going. But he knew he wasn't going to die at the hands of man at their will. He was going to die at the will of his father and his will and his timing. He wasn't going to be forced into something. When, when Jesus was going to die, he would go willingly and submit himself, not because other forces grabbed hold of him and took things out of his control. So he withdrew, waiting for that timing. And then we see there's another mention of the Passover there, which is actually the third one in John. We've had, already had two Passovers mentioned. And this is the third one, because John, when he writes his Gospels, likes to base them around the big feasts in Jerusalem, the big religious feasts, and we've seen all that all the way through. And the, the, this third Passover is coming, and this is the final Passover for Jesus. When we get to the Last Supper, and actually Jesus sharing this last meal with his disciples, that's what he's talking about here. So this Passover is coming, and Jesus is waiting for that moment. That's when he's going to return uh, to Jerusalem. And it says that many were coming into Jerusalem at the time. The, the population of Jerusalem, I think, doubled in size over the Passover with a number of pilgrims coming in. And many had to go there earlier uh, to purify themselves as um, dictated by um, the Old Testament Numbers chapter 9. It says if you touch a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. So you had to go a bit early, a week or so early, and, and purify yourself at the temple ready to eat the Passover because you couldn't eat the Passover, you're unclean. So there would be an influx of kind of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, ready for the Passover, getting ready. But what were they doing when they came? They obviously came for the ritual purification, but there was only one topic of conversation. Social media would have been a buzz. The front pages of the newspapers would have all been about this. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast at all? Is he around? Basically saying, where's this Jesus guy? Is he going to come? Is he going to turn up? There would have been a buzz of anticipation they'd heard about. Did you hear? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Really? Oh yeah, I know someone who was there. They watched it happen. He was dead in the tomb. There were weeping people. You know, professional whalers were there. Mary and Martha's sister were crying. Even Jesus turned up and cried. And then guess what? They pulled the stone back. He said, come out. Lazarus came out. And it was just amazing. Really? Do you think you'll get to do that again? Is he going to come around? I've heard about these other miracles you're seeing. So there was a buzz of anticipation. What do you think he's going to do? Is he the Messiah? Is he the chosen one? Are we going to throw off the Romans finally? There was this buzz would have been going around at the time. That's what happened. That explains, when you get to the triumphal entry, why people reacted the way they did when he came in. And they waved the palm branches and he was on the donkey and people just went berserk. Because they there was an expectation... Jesus was coming, something's going to happen. Is this the one? John the Baptist, he spoke about him. He said this guy was the one. He was one. He's got followers and all this kind of thing. But the religious people, they want to kill him. And it says that actually at the end there was actually, there was a fairly, it was an open secret that the, the guys in charge were trying to arrest him. So you've got this expectation, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. what's he going to do? But wait a minute, the authorities want to kill him. They want to catch him. And so it must have, you know, people have a kind of some a bit perverse sometimes. Like people like to go and watch accidents. Always look at an accident when you drive past in the car. You're almost like, what's going to happen here? Are they going to get? Are they going to catch him? Are they going to arrest him? Are they going to put him on trial? Are they going to kill him? Is Jesus going to turn up, perform some miracle? You know, are we going to have a battle in the street? What's going on? And you can imagine it being like, ooh, fever pitch time. But the aftermath was they were all kind of talking about Jesus and wanting to know. So you can see that everything's being lined up for this big explosive finale of what's going to happen with Jesus when he comes to Jerusalem. Is he going to come to Jerusalem? And what's the result? So we've had this um, 
uh, raising from the dead. We've got the kind of reaction from um, the people, from the, the authorities and others. And there's just three things I want to just draw out um, as we kind of finish today. The first one is I want to look at the responses to Jesus. The responses to Jesus. And these were divergent in the extreme. Now, there's an old saying from the Puritans that is, um, they say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. I hope you've been enjoying the sunshine recently, have you? We've had weeks of it and it's wonderful. It's not raining, it's England and it's summertime. These, these things don't often happen together, but they are happening now. And it's lovely and I'm, long may it continue through the month of August. So the sun has been out and it's blazing. But the fascinating thing about the sun is it can have different effects on different things. If you put ice out in your drink because you want it to be cold, the the ice will melt. And gradually your drink will warm up. And if you you put clay out and you mould clay into that and you leave it out in the same sun, it will eventually become hard, really hard, rock hard, the clay, when it was soft and malleable. And the old phrase from the Puritan, the the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay, is basically saying when God is at work displaying his attributes, it can be the same thing, but there are different results. The same thing's happening, but actually the results can be different. And they can be different to the extreme. Like what melting and hardening are just are too different. They're not the same. They're opposite ends of a spectrum. And what we've got here is you've got, at the beginning there, there's, there's a melting going on. It says many of the Jews there who had come with Mary and seen what he did believed in him. They'd seen Jesus, they'd seen him come, they'd seen him weep at the tomb of his friend and then raise him from the dead and they'd probably heard about all the other stuff and maybe even witnessed some of it, been a part of it, but their response to Jesus was a melting of adoration and faith and oh my goodness, this guy is who he claims to be. He said he's the resurrection and the life, he must be, look what he's done, all those other things, all the other I am statements we've come across in John all the things he's taught and said, all the miracles we've formed, the response was an acceptance and a, an acceptance of faith. And the result was they put their faith and trust in him and became his followers. In our vernacular, they became Christians. That's what happened. They became Christians. So the result of God's working, God's grace, God's love in action, the fact that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and is teaching and living there, the reaction the sun was a melting and a response and acceptance of faith. And if you're a believer here today, that's what happened. God came and worked in your life and your response was to melt and be, and be part of that and come and, and follow him and adore him and love him and, and put your faith and trust in him. But at the same time, the same working can result the other end. Outright rejection. Jesus raised a man from the dead. And by all accounts, the guy was a good guy. We haven't got anything about Lazarus like he was, you know, he was a local drug dealer or anything like that. You know, why did you raise him from the dead? You know, of all the people you could have raised it, there was nothing like that. Lazarus was a good guy. We reckon he was a family man because of things we, other things we know about him. So you've got guys been raised from the dead, member of the community, fairly prominent, probably a husband, probably a father, and he's been raised from the dead and restored. Where's the downside in that? Where's the negative thing in that? The compassion of Jesus for him, the, the, the performing of a miracle, yet the reaction for some was hardening. We'll go and grass, number one. And then those who are kind of hearing that, you've got some authority, what's the reaction? Death. We will kill him. In response to God's love being poured out and displayed in action in the world, the response was, we will kill it. We will fight it. We will stand against it. And despite 
what Jesus has done. There are those who will melt and come to him, but there are those who will harden and reject him and move away from him. And we see that kind of manifest in two ways. Um, you might have experienced this in people around you, people you know. Some people react, reject Jesus kind of by going down the license route and they reject all kind of all teachings on morals and authorities and go down there and they live their own life, their own way and we're going to do it and we don't care about other people and they have their own code, their own morals and they will, just, they will not deal with God or authority or any kind of absolutes and they just think we're just going to live our own life and have fun and do what we want to do our way. But there are also those who try to reject him kind of the other extreme which is go down the legalistic line. And actually they try and, they won't accept God and accept what he's done. They'll try and earn their way to God, earn their own favour. They'll give their time to making rules and trying to keep them. Trying to live a good life, whatever that looks like. Trying to be morally upright, trying to be better than the next person. Well, I'm not as bad as him, I'm not as bad as her. I couldn't ever face kind of a punishment or wrath from God because I'm not as bad as those guys or girls over there. I'm way better. I have salvation through political action, through charitable work, through recycling, through being a good neighbour and a good husband and a, and a good business person who tries to act ethically, all those things. I will earn my way to God and he will have to accept me. But ultimately behind that is a rejection of who God is and what he's asking for your life. And so you get this, God's at work and some people will melt and come to him and accept him, but there are others who will harden and turn away from him. And it's often in response to the same thing, God's love in action in the world. And I don't know what you're like, what you found in your life, but you can get the same response as a believer. You can find, okay, I, I need to live a certain way. I've read my Bible. I want to follow Jesus. There's things I need to do. I, I, I want to pray for my friends, for my neighbours. I want to love them. I want to show compassion to them. I want to show care for them, for those who I work with. I want to act with integrity and honesty and ethically and all these kind of things that you think are things the way God would have us act. You think I have a duty to uh, communicate the truth as best I can to them in a way that they would understand, in a way that's right for our relationship, that I will show the love of God for them. I will speak the love of God. I will tell them what I believe. I'll tell them the truth about Jesus. And you do all those things, and you can get divergent responses from the same thing. You can get people who will just accept that and love that, and those who will reject you and, and take offence at what you've done, even though actually, effectively, you've done the same thing to to do different people. You've seen melting and hardening in your life from those around you. Um, yesterday when we were travelling back from climbing Snowdon, we were, um, we were in the car and uh, Charlie had the radio on and we were listening to one of the Christian radio stations that Charlie likes to listen to. So he, he stuck on one of them and we are having a listen. And it was suddenly halfway through a testimony of a guy uh, on one of the radio stations and there was me and Charlie and Mike in the car and we suddenly, it all went very quiet where we'd been sort of chatting back and forth because we kind of got engrossed in this guy's testimony and he, he was a guy called Daryl and he was talking through his story that was pretty rough, pretty, pretty hard, he'd been in prison, he'd been, um, he'd been involved in drugs and he'd been involved in violence and, and lots of horrible things and he'd been in prison and even when he was in prison he was horrible, he was beating people up and he got moved around prisons and it was, it was, it was not a pleasant story and the worst thing was when he said, he was, oh that was when I was 17 and you're like, look at this guy's not going well. And, and, and he was telling this story, and then he said he got, called, he, um, he got offered by one of these guys to go on Alpha course, one of the other inmates, because they get signed up for all these courses, you can have education courses, and the guy said, do you want to go on Alpha course? And his first response was, no, because it's a Bible. If you, if, what did he say? If you come and talk to me again, I'll slap you or something, he said. But the guy came the next day and asked him, do you want to go on Alpha course? And said, oh, you get free coffee and biscuits or something. And so he said, I'll go on Alpha course. 
I'll go on the Alpha course. And he said, the, guy, the people who were running the Alpha course, there was a vic, the, the prison chaplain who was, he said, so, so churchy, it was just everything I believed about church. He, had, you know, he was this old dude with a, a dog collar, and he said he was just so church. And with him helping him, he said, were two women who were retired nuns, he said. And he goes, he goes I don't know how old you have to be to be a retired nun. Because you kind of think nuns are kind of old, and then you have retired nuns. And so he said, these were like the mummy, these two. Do you know, that's, what, that's how he described them. They were, like, they were from the film The Mummy. They were that old. And he was like, oh, I can't believe this. Um, but then he said, he, said, this is, he said, this is what happened. This is what kind of where it turned. He said, he said, but what got me was how they met me. Because he said, I went there. I didn't want to listen. I wanted the free biscuits and the coffee. I didn't want to listen. He said, but he said, this is his phrase. Something like, they met me with love. That's what he said. They met me with love. This churchy guy, vicar, and these two old, old ex-nuns, retired nuns. He said, they met me with love. He said, they met me with love, and I couldn't resist. And, and he's kind of, and the sad thing is they cut the, they cut the testimony off, they didn't they? They moved it on to somewhere else. We're like, no, just tell me. But we, in fact, he was talking on a Christian radio, so you kind of knew where it was going. But it was that phrase, he met me with love. So the love of these two, two retired nuns and this vicar running this alpha course in a prison hit this hardened young man, and he melted. And he melted. And I contrast that with the experience I had. I was on, when I was trained to be a teacher, um, one of um, the teachers I had to work alongside as part of my training, he did teaching practice. Uh, she was a lady. And she was, she was almost the opposite end. As soon as she found out I was a Christian, because I was at university, and it just, it just kind of came up, church girl, you could, actually, you could feel the opposite response. It's almost like she wasn't interested. And not she wasn't interested, she almost became actively antagonistic to me, which is quite difficult when you want a teaching practice to train and this is the person you've got to work with and they have to write a report about you at the end and you're like, oh, no, can't fail this one because this was my, this was actually my final one I remember, my fourth year. So this was like, you had to pass this one or you didn't pass. And it was a long one. It was like 10 weeks or something in school. And it was just like, oh no. And she really wasn't happy. And so I thought, how do you respond to this? Like, well, you, you do all the things that you love them, you do all that. And it didn't matter what I tried to do loving or going the extra mile, all the things you think you could do to help, she just got harder and harder and more difficult and more difficult. And I was trying to think, I'm trying to do what I think is the right thing as a naive kind of 21-year-old, however old I was, trying to work hard, be a good teacher, but also try and be a good example. And she just got harder and harder and harder. And uh, it just it didn't go well. Thankfully, I passed and went on to become a teacher. But um, uh, luckily, there, the thing that saved me was the head was a Christian, <laughs> which I didn't realise, and she found out and helped. But it was, it was, you see that these two things, there was the melting going on of someone who you think, how could God possibly touch them? And they got melted. And at the same time, this other lady I had to deal with just got harder and harder. And for us, we can face both of those. But what we're called to do is be faithful regardless. It doesn't matter who you're facing and who you're dealing with, we're called to show the love of God. And whether they melt before you, and they, you know, there's a response and it's wonderful and they accept the love of God in your life or they become harder and harder, we're still called to do that. And if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. I don't know what your experience is like, whether you've had both of those things. If you've only had the acceptance ones, you're really blessed and that's wonderful. But either if you've only had the hardening ones, that's still something we've got to be faithful, we've got to move and people will react. And no matter how you act, even if you act in the most loving way, some people will just get hard and reject it. But we're still called to keep going. Let's move on to number two. Number two, motives for rejecting Jesus. The motives for the the Sanhedrin, the council to reject Jesus were purely self-interest. 
They wanted to be in charge. They did not want to give up their positions of comfort, power, apparent security. We realised it wasn't very secure. You fast forward 40 years, not secure at all. But they, they thought they were secure. They had power. They had authority. They didn't want anyone mucking up the status quo. Jesus was a threat to that. They didn't want that. They wanted everything there. They didn't want Jesus to come and stop them being in charge. Or they sure as heck didn't want Jesus to be in charge. If he was come, God come to earth and come to his people, they weren't having that. Sorry, we've got everything buttoned up, God. We do not need you to come and muck all this, car, all this up. And what this drives at the heart of is what it means to be a Christian. Because when Jesus turns up and starts take, making demands of the world on how you should live, you've got the choices. Do you, do you accept him and submit, or do you reject him and say, actually, sorry, I'm in charge. There's already someone on the throne in my life, Jesus. We don't need you. And it's, it goes back to the beginning in the garden. What did it say Adam and Eve wanted? They, the serpent tempted them. It says, you will be like God. You will be in charge. You will have that power. You will have that authority. You will be in that position. That's what, that's what the serpent said to them. And what happened? They gave in because they wanted that. They wanted to be in control. And it's been the same ever since. And becoming a Christian is actually relinquishing that sense of authority and control. Actually, we're not in charge anymore. God's in charge. In fact, God's been in charge the whole time. We're just accepting the universal truth that God is sovereign. He made everything. He's in charge. He has a right to demand of us and call us to live a certain life. And becoming a believer is doing that. We have phrases in the Bible where you know, we, we, Jesus tells us to take up our cross, symbol of death, Simple of dying to ourselves and follow him. Actually, we're, it's almost, we don't deny our kind of our personality or who we are, but actually we deny our kind of any, any claims to being in charge, any claims to being ruling or anything, and we, we humbly follow him. Jesus himself modeled that. He literally took the cross and died for us. Jesus prayed in the garden, didn't he? Not my will, but yours. He even demonstrated a submission to the authority of his Father in heaven. And I don't know if you've come across um, others in your life, um, those who maybe kind of have thought about Christianity or those you've known well who ultimately rejected Christianity or maybe they've accepted it and drifted away. It often comes down to, in my observation, my experience, a question of who's in charge and a refusal to acknowledge that God's in charge and therefore he has the right and authority to say things. I've known people over my life who've basically stumbled over certain issues. They've actually thought, you know, the fact that God has a say over what they do with their money, they just can't stomach. What God has a right to say about how you, 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 you act with your money, you act with possessions. And I think, no, no, they're, 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 they want to choose. They're not going to give up their right to how they deal with their money, their income, their possessions in a way that God would, um, would want. And so actually, you know, they've ultimately rejected it. The whole area of sex. God has got a say over how you use your body for yourself, but also in connection to others and who you sleep with them, sleep with and when you sleep with them. Actually, God says, I've got a say on that and I've got, I'm going to make a demand on you. And I know people who have rejected and fallen away from the faith because they cannot submit to what God would have them say in terms of sexual ethics, sexual purity. And it's actually, no, I'm not interested in that. I will do what I want to do my way. And they've ultimately rejected God as a result on that. The whole area of priorities. What's, who's number one in your life? How are you going to order your life? How are you going to kind of deal with these priorities? People have actually saying, no, I will not put God as number one. 
Jesus will not be in charge. He can come down the list after I've done all the things I want, and then he'll fit in a slot at the bottom, and I'll try and fit him in maybe Sundays if I'm available, but the rest of the time, no, that's mine. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. And these guys in here, they rejected because they wanted to be number one. They wanted to stay in control. And if you're a believer here, you've obviously made that first step. You've actually recognized that God is who he said he was. Jesus is who he said he was. And said, actually, I want to have that demand on your life. You've put your faith and trust in him. But the, the question then is, as we walk through this journey of life, and the Bible says that we are changed slowly by one degree of glory to the other. We go through this process sanctifying process as we are gradually transformed to the image of Christ and ultimately one day we'll be completely transformed and see him face to face. Perfect. But actually, are there areas of your life now that you haven't relinquished control of? Sometimes I heard someone describe it um, that we're called to be living sacrifices. The problem with a living sacrifice, it can crawl off the altar. Dead ones don't. <laughs> Dead stay We're living sacrifices. We, we sacrifice, we put ourselves in the altar and say, God, we're going to serve you. But then every so often we crawl off a little bit and say, actually, no, God, I'll have this bit back. And so are there areas of your life where you haven't relinquished control? Areas about direction of your life, what God's calling you to. Areas of money and possessions. Areas of attitudes towards people, towards his church, what he's doing in the whole area of, of sexuality and all, all the sort of sexual ethics around there? Have you actually submitted that to God? Because the call of a believer is, ultimately, is that everything comes under God. Everything's under his control. There's nothing in all of creation that God doesn't say, that's mine. Which includes us and our lives and every area of our lives. And so I challenge you, if there are things in your life which you know that God's conviction about, actually putting, aligning yourself back... Don't act like the Sanhedrin, which ultimately led to that, right, we will reject Christ, we will kill him, because that's the path it's on. When you're rejecting something, you're going down that path. Deal with it now. We can get people to pray for you um, at the end of the meeting, talk through. So I encourage you, process that. Last one. Number three. Uh, The result of all this was everyone was talking about Jesus. Whether they accepted or rejected, guess what? Everyone spoke about Jesus. What was the buzz at the festival? Where's Jesus? Where's he coming? What's going to happen? And I love this. You've got people planning to kill him, but they're still talking about him. They're still talking about him. They're still, he's the one on everyone's lips. And God's sovereign plan is being worked out, and ultimately it will prevail in the end. And there's nothing that man can do about that. Nothing. They might try and scheme, they might try and work things out like the Sanhedrin were doing. We'll try and get this, you know, we'll try and sort this out. But ultimately, they were just part of what God was working out. And he was using sinful actions ultimately for his glory. And so, whatever situation you find yourself in now, whether you find yourself in a position where, you know, things are going well, things aren't going quite so well, you find yourself in a position where there are people are kind of rejecting you, rejecting Jesus in you, all these things going on, you need to know that ultimately God is working it out. Because Jesus is everywhere. That little bit of evidence I gave you at the beginning, he's everywhere and he ain't going away. Because he's king and he's ruler and he's in his creation and he's coming back and his church will grow. We see it all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. God wanted a people for himself, Adam and Eve. It went wrong, but then he spent the rest of the Bible drawing these people back to himself 
He chose Abraham and, his, and that line, which then became the nation of Israel. He took them to the promised land. And even when they went away and they got rejected, they got pulled back. Jesus came. We have the church. And ultimately, it will all be pulled together. One nation, sorry, one people of every nation, tribe, and tongue before God forever. So ultimately, God's plan is working out. And wherever you find yourself, God will be working his plan out. And to take heart in that, God gave us a commission Matthew 28, we read it kind of this condensed form, go into all the world, make disciples of every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teach them what I've told you. That's our commission, that's what we're on. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, you don't have to worry about it, I'll build it, I'm going to do the heavy lifting, you just need to go out there and tell people, people train them, I'm going to make sure it all happens. We have the church growing, thriving worldwide, however many believers there are, a billion or so. God even called us specifically to be a large, influential, reproducing church. I don't know how he's going to do that. <laughs> but you know what? He's going to do it. <laughs> so that's good. That's all right. God is doing it. And Jesus is on the move. He is, he is moving his church forward. So wherever you find yourself, you're thinking people reject it. I'm kind of having no fruit. I'm trying to live this life. It doesn't seem to have any effect. Take heart because God is working his purposes out, even when it looks bad. If this was a film... This is one of the bad points of the film where it's all dark and a decision is made to kill the hero and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going to go well. It's all going downhill, yet behind it, God's plan is working out. And for where you find yourself, God is working out. We're looking next term. We want to run an Alpha course. We're praying God brives people in the Alpha course. God willing, he will. And you might think, I haven't got anyone I could possibly invite on an Alpha course. Take heart, because God is building his church, and God is using him. And when it looks bleak, he's still at work. He's still going to be working things out. Even in the hard situations, God is still going to be working out. Ultimately, people are going to talk about him, they're going to come to know him, and his church is going to be built, and his name will be glorified in all the earth. No matter how man thinks they're going to reject him, ultimately, he's going to burst through the gates of the sky, and everyone's going to know. And it's going to be wonderful. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand up? Let's stand. Do you want to come up? I'm just going to pray and we're going to finish. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. I don't know what situation, what's like for you at the moment. I don't know where you find yourself. Is it going well? Is it going hard? What battles you're up against? Are you finding acceptance because of your faith? Are you finding rejection because of your faith? Even indifference can be hard work sometimes because of your faith and you're trying to to live a life that God's called you to. You, You may have plans on your heart, desires to see God move in certain situations, certain people's lives, and you're praying, God, do something in that life, and they almost seem to be drifting further away rather than coming closer. I just want to pray for you, for grace on you, for the Holy Spirit on you to keep going in what you're doing because that's what God's called us to. He didn't call us to be in charge and control all situations for us. He called us to live a faithful life first and foremost. So Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to come now. You fill your church, fill your people. You know their situations intimately. You know what they're facing and how tough it can be. You know the successes where things are going well and they've got great stories to tell and you want to... They want to shout it from the rooftops. Lord, we thank you for them. Lord, we also pray whether it seems like people are hardening before them in the face of love and compassion and your work. Lord Jesus, 
God, we pray, God, you would melt hearts. Lord, we ask you would use us to do that. Lord, we thank you that ultimately it will work out uh, for your glory and your kingdom growth. We, we believe that. We trust that, Lord. And God, we ask, Lord, you would use us to do that, Lord Jesus. Lord, where there are things in our life where we haven't given them over to you, Lord, we ask you to give us grace to do that. If there are things now even in your heart and you know what they are, I just ask you to just make a commitment now. Make that same resolution the council made. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to give that over. I'm going to relinquish control of my job situation, my financial situation, my, you know, any future spouse I may want or any desired relationship I may have where God's going to lead my life, where I'm going to end up. I just relinquish that now for him. Lord, we thank you that ultimately you work for the good of your people. Lord, your desire is to train us, to grow us, to make us more like you. Lord, we love you and we praise you for that, Lord. And we just want to say we want to honour you and praise you today. We want to say thank you that you saved us. We thank you that you came to us, melted our hearts, brought us to new life in you called us to follow you all the days of our life. And we want to say, God, we willingly do that. Today is another day, and today we will follow you. Lord Jesus, give us grace for this day, grace for this coming week. Lord Jesus, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.